Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you have not already, be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want to hear from you and get your feedback. I'm joined, as I am every every pod, by the lovely Caitlin Cooper, my good friend, co-host, and colleague. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well. We get to talk about something we barely got to talk about this season for the Pacers, Mark. Well, I mean, we did talk about it, just not always in a favorable light. So today we get to talk about defense a little bit. We do get to talk about defense <laughs> a little bit. Um, the, where where it's coming from, uh, the timeliness, everything else, that's up for debate. Uh, but yeah, if, uh, if anybody has not watched the LSU Tigers play basketball this season, it was an experience. Uh, like no other, um, when your basketball coach is pretty much a mob boss, that's going <laughs> to happen on court. Um, so, yeah, just in case anybody didn't know about that, Will Wade uh, got fired due to the FBI probe. So, yeah, that that, that happens sometimes uh, when you are like that. But, yeah, um, we're really psyched to be joined by a friend of ours. We've been on, on his podcast multiple times over at the Strickland. Um, we are actually – I think you and I are like the foremost Knicks fans that aren't actually from New York. So, um we always make our appearances over there, but we're joined by Press. Press, how are you doing today, man? I'm happy to be on this podcast of lifelong Knicks fans. Lifelong, yes, very life, very lifelong. This was a it was a very tough season for Caitlin and I. We didn't even have the Knicks to rely upon with the Pacers going to shit. So um, <laughs> a tough time was not a good backup plan. Not gonna lie, <laughs> it wasn't. You know, you can normally hope for it, but uh, not this time around. Um, Caitlin, who are we talking about today? Well, since you already said we're going to LSU and we're talking about defense and people are probably listening to the pod at this point, we are talking about Tari Eason. And our format remains the same as people know from past episodes. We're doing stock up, stock down again, where basically we both have watched LSU's games against Alabama, Auburn, Tennessee, and Missouri. And then we're each picking a reason to be bearish, a reason to be bullish. And we're using Prez today as our expert to judge the right and wrongness of our takes and also just expand on any other Tari Eason related topics that he would like to bring up. Yeah, there are a lot of Tari topics to bring up, which I feel like we're going to branch off a lot in this one, which I'm very excited for. And Caitlin, that is a perfect way to flow into your first stock up. You're already tossing the ball to me, huh? I did. You did it to me last time. So I'm doing it right Yeah. Back. So before we even got on the pod and you asked me, like, what did you think of Tari Easton? I think that my overwhelming impression or overarching take from the four games is you kind of have to live on the edge to watch him a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And he's also like, I would describe him as pervasive. He's everything, everywhere, all at once. So because of what the Pacers lacked at the defensive end this year, I did pick a defensive highlight, although I know that we will get into there are some, there all are also some defensive lowlights, but I take us to the Auburn game. He is playing backup five at this point in the game. As we know, he came off the bench this season, except for four games for LSU. Um, defending at the five, the Wendell Green gets a ball screen from the five man, which Tari then switches out on. Gets the guy to back up to the hypothetical four-point line, which forces Auburn to go into their next action, which typically for them, they don't use a lot of ghost screens. 
we talked about this a little bit when we did the Jabari Smith Auburn pod that when they need to get into the next thing, they'll go into the pitch action that Nate Bjorkren kind of used with Sabonis or that you'll see the Raptors use with Pascal Siakam at times. So the guard kind of moves in front of Jabari and that allows him to get typically into his one-two pull-up shot. And as we know from the prior pod, that sometimes even when he has a driving lane, he doesn't always use it. So in this case, LSU switches it as they ran a pretty switch-heavy scheme. And Tari wisely jumps his right. Jabari tries to get it to his step back, and Tari goes from jumping his right to getting into that airspace and actually prevents him from getting a shot off, which is a pretty tall order given that Jabari's uh, launching point on his shot is incredibly high, and he's not afraid to be taking contested threes. So... For the sake of being a multi-positional, uh, able to defend multiple actions, multiple players on one possession, that's not really something that the Pacers had last season. Yeah, I think that's an essential launching off point because I think that was the main thing that stuck out for me in watching LSU, you know, right this this time back through and throughout the year was, wow, it'd be really cool if the Pacers had somebody like this who has any kind of defensive range. Like I think, like you mentioned um, his ability to switch and not just, and it's not even just about the switching, but just like ground coverage in general with his size, length and instincts was like, oh, wow, there's, there's not anybody on the team who really does this. Um, so I, I agree with you 100% there. Uh, Prez talking about Tari's defense. I know what, just for, for people who don't know you, like I wanted to have you on because you had Tari as part of your screen name for a large part of the season. You know, get get him, get him to New York, uh, another team who needs needs bigger wings. Uh, so yeah, where are you at with that? Yeah, I like the way y'all described him. Um, you know, on LSU, they had a really great defensive team. I think they're, I forget what metric it is uh, that um, Bart Torvik uses, but they were top five, I want to say, in the country. Yeah, at the end of the which season, which is crazy. Watching the amount of breakdowns that they have, but yeah, they have breakdowns, but they have the kind of players who, at the college level, can just make up for it. They have all these athletic dudes, and everybody's got long ass arms and uh, flies around. It's fairly mobile group. So uh, yeah, I mean, defensively, he's he's a big wing, but he's kind of more than that. He I, like in the context of the Knicks, you know, we have Tibbs and y'all have Carlisle. So there's some similarities there, some. And I think both coaches would like have a love-hate relationship with Tari because of his perfect fit into stuff that they would ideally like to do, but don't have the roster to do. But at the same time, as you all have hinted, I'll just say it straight up. Tari has a lot of brain farts and I, I'm y'all probably know more than me about Carlisle, but with Tibbs, it would be a, definitely a quick hook. And with Will Wade, it was a quick hook. People asked, you know, why was this guy with a 32 usage, a sixth man, which I'm pretty sure has never happened in the last decade. I haven't run that statistical query yet, but um, it's because he was, he's the kind of coach who would just, pull a guy if he like didn't jog back or didn't box out or forgot his rotation or whatever and he'd put him back in you know he wouldn't keep him on the bench on ice but like i my theory is that he he'd never earned that because of these kind of breakdowns and these lapses but because of his talent and his length seven three wingspan hops quick reaction speed he's 
moves like a smaller guy with the limbs of a bigger guy and it, it just results in lots of disruption and pervasiveness like caitlin said so that's how you get a that's how you get the crazy stock numbers and the event generation because between just him doing what the lsu scheme asked along with a bunch of other long guys and then him having sometimes pretty good instincts on when to just freelance and like leave his man to a passing lane or to double someone from a blind spot. Um, There's just so many ways for him to disrupt the defense with his tools. Um, so the question I always kind of struggled with, with his defense is like, do I ding him for all the, all the lapses or do I just go into wild fantasy land? And I'm like, what is he, if he's locked in all the time, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. is he like the best defender I've ever seen? I don't know. So, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty high on the defense for all those reasons. Cause I think, a lot of those lapses with the right coach can probably get repped out. Um, just, just, you know, like any young guy. So uh, if his defensive floor is high and his ceiling is higher, even with those brain lapses, that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. It's interesting too. Cause like you mentioned in, in terms of repping those things out, it brings up a lot of interesting philosophical points. Like we haven't done our pot on Jeremy Sohan yet, but when we do, I think like, um, not that Caitlin and I are going to pit them against one another, but those are two guys like, as you know, Prez, they've been really heavily like pitted against one another throughout the draft cycle for varying reasons. Um, and I think it brings up a lot of the questions of like, like even it, sometimes Tari can like totally ball watch for an entire possession. And then mm -hmm. he still just like blocks a shot on a closeout because <laughs> he has what, like a seven, three wingspan. So, and the recovery skills are really impressive. Um, and it also makes me wonder too, like, okay, you know, if he's playing on, saying playing in a better defensive system with with more sound personnel but that that would i probably not be the pacers next year um but i mean it, it does bring up a lot of questions of what could that look like in a more reined in sense but also it does bring up questions of how much of that stuff can you rein in i guess um caitlin where are you at with that well i think it's important to kind of qualify what it is that he's doing because like at the i don't know what you picked for your stock up but like mm -hmm. At the end of that Alabama game, he literally comes off the strong side corner and he anticipates that they're going to go to a guard to guard screen pop, reads the pop, knows that his teammate's going to be late, gets out there. And like you're saying, with the recovery speed, blocks that shot. And then like kind of in the pinnacle of what Tari Eason is, blocks the <laughs> shot, creates the event, gets out on the run, finishes in transition. And that gives them the lead in a late game situation. Big defensive play. So sometimes I don't know that I would categorize some of the mistakes that he has on defense necessarily as low feel as much as, and this might sound a little bit harsh, but recklessness, it comes at the cost of schematic discipline at times. And I think it's somewhat him betting on himself a little mm -hmm. too much. I think that he reads it. He sees that it's coming and he thinks and overestimates what he's going to be able to do in situations. So it can lead to some really reckless gambles um, going out to passing lanes. And I did find a, a possession in among these games when we were watching where um, he hunted the passing lane and then never got back in the play, kind of walked back into it while the guy was in the lane and then ended up getting a kick out or, you know, he's going to jump out of control, get off balance on a hard closeout. And then, like you said, it's some of it's difficult to parse too, because of what their defensive system was, they're playing this very high pressure scheme where they're doing a lot of switching. They're doubling the short corner. They're doubling various spots on the floor. And he would miss rotations out of that very clearly that should have been his. And then somebody's getting to the basket where he doesn't come off of his guy to go double. Um, so in some respects, there was camouflage from that. And in other respects, it made it stand out very much when he was making mistakes. So mm -hmm. 
from like a scouting perspective, they have these amazing highlights and the event creation is there. Like, I mean, what Prez said, the stocks creation is on par with what Isaiah Jackson did for the Pacers this season. Um, that's not something that they readily have, but also as Prez pointed out, they had a lot of lengthy defenders around him. So at times when he would get beat, their guys were constantly in the gaps. They were shrinking the floor really well. So, um, I'm not sure that the Pacers have that same surrounding infrastructure, but, um, it's kind of, it's exactly what you're saying. Like, I think some of what he's doing is teachable. If you have the right defensive teachers, um, I think that Prez is correct in thinking that Tibbs probably would get very impatient with him, <laughs> but they do have people to teach defense for the Pacers sake. Like I'm, I don't want to downplay completely, but I haven't seen a lot of individual defensive development from various players this year, at least under this current coaching staff and really going back to last year as well. So not in the same way that we did with, you know, Nate McMillan and Dan Burke. So I don't know if you can bet on some of that being ironed out, but I think that you can rein in some of the over eager extremes in a way that you can't teach somebody to have physical attributes, movement skills, and his, his same instincts, if that makes sense. Just trade for coach Taj Gibson and you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Player coach Taj Gibson. He's literally, I mean, if you, very random aside, Tree Rollins of the of the 2000s, uh, as far as I'm concerned. But um, it's interesting because that is kind of what my stock up is, Caitlin. Like I uh, like I just have it described as chaos for Tari on both sides of the ball. Um, and I think in some ways it's not a good thing. But I also think I look at this team so often and I feel like they kind of need some of that at times, which maybe sounds like oversimplifying. But um I just kind of appreciate that you can look at him and you're not really going to know what you get from him from time to time. Um, like, obviously you want the consistency to come, but I think like, um, I don't know, like the first time that, that I ever saw Tari, cause I never saw him in Cincinnati, but seeing him at LSU, like the first time you see him, like, you know, come off the catch. I'm like, okay, I think he'll be able to do like a line drive closeout or something, but then it's like, no, he's going to go through a rip through and then between his legs. And like, it, there's varying levels of efficacy. Do not get me wrong. Um, but I think just some of the, um, the audacity I really appreciate. And I think that there's real value to somebody who's willing to try stuff, but I think it also, again, brings in a lot of stuff. How much is that going to be something that a coaching staff buys into, um, is a great question. Cause I, I, uh, I forgot to actually hit you up about this, but O'Shea Brissett went on setting the pace, uh, and mentioned that they want to go to the playoffs next year. Um, I'm not sure if that's a, a mandate from, from the team, but he said it. And we've heard multiple players say that now in the, in the off season. So it, it does make it interesting. Um, but yeah, that is my, as my general stock up right now. And I kind of want to branch off of that a little bit. And I know this is supposed to be the positive segment of it, but you saying that the audacity and some of the stuff with the handle as well, which we'll get into later, but he committed 5.1 turnovers per 100 possessions. That's he, had, yeah. he had 73 turnovers to 33 assists on 30 on over 30% usage, like just, just as a point of reference um, of all the players in the NBA who had over 30% usage last year, nobody had more turnovers than assists, let alone 40 more turnovers than assists. So I think that there is something to what you're saying that like being exploratory and him having that degree of the ball in his hands to kind of test out some of his passing and other stuff was valid, but turnovers and ball security are also an aspect of defense. And the Pacers already ranked 27th in the NBA in turnover rate last year after the trade deadline. And they also ranked dead last after the trade deadline and 
points per 100 transition plays. They gave up 144.4 points per 100 transition plays. So that's 30th. So if you're adding in another player, which is 5.1 turnovers per 100 possessions would have been more than anybody that finished uh, the season on the roster for the Pacers. He's not going to have the ball in his hands near as much as he did and the bench role that he had at LSU. But I do think that that would almost put more pressure on his chaos creation to mitigate those giveaways by creating takeaways. Cause you have to get that back somehow. Some of those were dead ball turnovers and I'll get both of your feedbacks on the turnovers in general. I mean, he travels on the catch quite a bit. He commits offensive fouls trying to force his way right quite a bit, but there were <laughs> his fair share of, of live ball and lost ball turnovers. So um, overall, how do you kind of see the turnover to assist and contextualizing that at the next level? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a that's a great point because I think I should have probably framed it better than just chaos. But like, I think part of what makes me intrigued is that I feel like a lot of those things can be ironed out, and obviously in a much smaller role. But it also makes me um, a little bit more interested in what could happen if he gets those reps to keep building awesomeness. So like, obviously, he's not going to have close to thirty percent usage. But I just think like, okay, if he's part of a bench unit and he gets an opportunity just to attack off the catch, like, and and, and do some some more things um, with the ball in his hands, or not necessarily more things with the ball in his hands, but just get opportunities to wrap things out in a less uh, like I think in some ways. Uh, I talked about this with Ben Taylor one time on a pod um, over at Thinking Basketball. He's awesome. If anybody is not aware of his stuff, I, I recommend listening to him. But like we talked about, like this is not to go on a huge aside, but like looking at where the, what the Rockets did this season and how that is what I think a lot of people look at in terms of development is how it should be done. And I'm not quite there. Like I think they essentially for anybody who didn't watch the Rockets, they gave the ball to Kevin Porter Jr. and said, well, not obviously not said, but this is a very you know, unfair way to put it, said, be a point guard, figure it out. And it just doesn't really work that way to force feed on ball reps most of the time. And I feel like if you can put Tari down into a much more reduced role and be like attack off the catch, attack off, you know, like if, if, the, if a loose ball happens or you get a random post up on, on a mismatch, then you get, you get creation opportunities there or something. Um, and I think in a more reduced role where he can focus on some of the things where it's like, okay, tighten your handle off the catch or work on these dribble moves off the catch. Like instead of just do everything on court all at once, like you mentioned, Caitlin, I do wonder like how much more you get from him just if that stuff is able to rein in more. One interesting question I have for both of you um, that is a challenge in evaluating Tari Um and evaluating any guys who find themselves in these situations generally is, you know, a lot of prospects, lottery prospects, it's pretty easy to figure out what role they're going to play in the NBA or to at least narrow it down to a couple of roles, right? Like even someone like Dyson Daniels, you're like point guard or connector. There's probably some variation of that. There's nothing else that's going to come out of left field and surprise you. But with Tari, you know, being a Nick fan, it, it, it almost reminds me of the Obi Toppin evaluation, which was difficult because he played small ball five so much and he had high usage and he was stronger than guys and all that stuff. And he was going to, uh, you know, nobody thought he was going to get more than uh, a few small ball five minutes and, and Tibbs made it. So he got no small ball five minutes. And so we were trying to figure out like, what does he look like at the four and what does he need to succeed at the four and all that. And with Tari, you know, some of the questions is, you know, y'all alluded to it. He played some small ball five 
he has the standing reach to play some small ball five. He has higher standing reach than Jericho Sims. I forget what he clocked in at, but it was like almost nine feet, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, so pretty tall or far or whatever the proper descriptor is. So there's that. There's the fact that, you know, he can hang with some wings who are smaller because he has long arms, but he's really has like shoulders down the body of somebody who's like six, six, cause he has a long neck and a big head to be honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, obviously his ideal position is definitely the four, but you can do a lot of things with him on both ends, um, particularly on defense. So that kind of impacts how you evaluate things, especially on offense. So like y'all mentioned, he's not going to have the same usage. Yeah, it's going to be lower, but he's also going to have different role. It's not going to be the same role in lower usage either, right? Like he was the toss the grenade guy at LSU, like come and save us at the end of the possession or whatever. That was basically him, even though he has no left, doesn't pass. And it's still working on how to dribble basketballs more than a couple of times. So like, he's going to have a dramatically different role probably as a uh like a closeout attacker energy motor guy maybe he gets some like mismatch attacking with bench units early in his career that would be my guess to how a team starts him out but there's a lot of gray area in there um my kind of take on it is i'm just assuming that's going to be sort of his role early on and then that's going to take care of a lot of the turnover issues. Um, he's definitely going to have the turnovers that stem specifically from him trying to just like not use his left hand and bum yeah. rush people. Those will still be there, but I'm not quite as worried about the other ones. Like if, if he can't take one off season and learn how to not travel off the catch, then Rick Carlos is just going to make him learn and not play him much. So, uh, you know, there's some of those things I think will iron themselves out naturally, but the ones that have that are related to ball handling, those are kind of the the turnovers that worry me a little more. But just back to my question, it's more just how do y'all see, how do you all evaluate somebody whose role can be really variable, I guess? I'll let you answer that one first, Caleb, because I'm trying to think. Well, I mean, I think that that was my, I mean, I, I, texted Mark yesterday whenever we were setting our schedule and I said Tari is really throwing me for a loop and I think that you kind of hit the nail (laughs) on the head with it like it really is kind of hard to project that I mean I think at first this is going to sound a little bit harsh but I think you're looking at him somewhat as a defense first guy who you're going to kind of try to survive with on offense to an extent like I don't think he's going to be you know probably even your third or fourth option right away. I mean, we're going to get into that and the stock down a little bit. And I do agree on the turnover front. I mean, you can also point to a few things with LSU. Like they virtually had no shooting. I think they thought, I think they shot like 31% as a team. They had Efton Reed kind of lumbering around sometimes in the paint around the rim and units when Tari wasn't at small ball five. Um, and I also think that there were times, I think he shows some passing feel and it just didn't always get cashed in on. Like if there was if there was a way in college basketball to track potential assists, I think that would look a little bit better where teammates didn't knock down shots. I think he did. Um, I thought he had some nice looks out of the high post where, you know, maybe if you're willing to put him at the elbow and he, he threaded a few passes in a couple of these games. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's the, the biggest thing. Like I'm even just looking at who, what other players the Pacers have and trying to envision exactly what his role would be 
offensively is a little bit hard to um, project. I'm glad you brought up the spacing. I did the bare minimum as a professional and have some stats handy here. And LSU was, uh, well, I'll, I'll let you guys guess. What do you think their rank was in three-point attempts per game? There's about 350, I think, NCAA teams, maybe a little more than that. I'm going to guess 240. I think it's around. Actually, no, I'm trying to think. Because it's so confusing because, like, just to to paint a picture for you, Caitlin, and for everyone else, like, this LSU team last year was the inverse. So, like, the team before that had, like, Trenton Wofford and Cam Thomas was, like, one of the best offenses in basketball, and their defense was bottom five in the NCAA, if I remember correctly. They did an inverse this year, so it's hard to parse through. Um, I think they were around 300, if I remember correctly. Uh, per game, it is 244. In terms of uh, three-point percentage, 280th. Um, so, yeah, not good spacing. And given his play style, I feel like this is the most – it seems obvious – but like I feel like no, I'm going crazy and nobody's talking about that. Like we're talking about a guy who profiles as a at least early on as gaining most of his offense from like transition, closeout, attacking, maybe some mismatches and some spot up threes, with a lot of that being attacking off of rotating passes and stuff like that, which he didn't get to do like yeah. ever. And he still had like the most efficient offense ever, despite like no passing, no left hand, no spacing. So even like, I, I don't know where the Pacers ended up in terms of offense or how you guys think their offense projects next year. But to me, there's like, if, if he did go to the Pacers or even if he went to the stupid Knicks, like he's going to get a spacing upgrade. Cause there, you can only go up from what he dealt with. And then when you combine that with a usage and roll downgrade, like, He's going to get easier looks that's going to make some of those simple passes easier and some of those dribbling in a crowd turnovers more infrequent and some of those dunks more common and things like that, which is part of why I'm really so high on him because like you have all the faults, but the fact that he produced with those, I'm trying to view that more charitably because I learned from Tyrese Halliburton, who's a completely different player, but I spent a whole draft cycle just nitpicking the hell out of him and what he couldn't do and why he wouldn't do this or that. And then I didn't really think about what would he look like in better context? And, you know, why did he produce so much despite all of these flaws? And, you know, you can see why I'm high on his offense in that sense, like the combination of buying the shot and just him having a better context and kind of learning how to, hoop for real mm-hmm. like i don't know man i would i'm, I'm high on tyree's offense <laughs> so it's so interesting because like you're hitting on like i uh i think the way that i'm viewing it um especially just with handles in general like i think that you can get your handle to a place where you can be comfortable one-on-one and especially attacking closeouts but like dribbling through traffic is not something that i think just comes easily and you can mm-hmm. wrap out like that takes a, a, it takes a ton of time, but also like there are guys who just have never been able to figure that out. I feel like that's a pretty routine thing. Like even with Paul George has like one of the greatest handle manufacturers of all time. And even then he still has some issues dribbling through traffic. Like 
I think Jalen Brown, especially like the, the playoffs have exacerbated that like a million times, but like he went from somebody who watching him play at Cal, like anything on offense outside of dunking was like a, uh, like it felt like years away. And to be where he's at now, like he still struggles dribbling through traffic. Like I think that's always going to be probably an issue for Tari. And I would like one of his highest end outcomes is if that somehow becomes not as much of a problem. But like I do think uh, I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but as the season went on, I felt like he got a lot better at if the nail help came, he was better at sensing it and passing to the corners or just making a quick read instead of, you know, he still had a lot of those turnovers. Don't get me wrong, but I felt like um, especially, you know, watching the last like four or five games of the season, those that that really improved for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that he does. So, like I said, I think he shows pieces where you can see bits of passing feel that are better than what the assist to turnover ratio looks like at first blush. But I do think um, a specific subset of the turnovers are still concerning. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. we'll just go ahead and go right through a brick wall turnovers. <laughs> yeah, It'd be we'll a just... lot easier if he had the willingness to use the other side of the court. And that's what my stock down is the left side <laughs> of the floor. So um just to run this down for people, they'll be able to see it all in the article. But um, if he has to, when he actually, when an opponent manages to force him left, which wasn't that often at the college level because he is so strong, um, it wavers between aimless and chaotic. There's times <laughs> where he's just going to go with his left and it's just a drive to nowhere until he finally like finds a spot to give up the ball. And then like, this very, I mean, this possession is basically a nothing. Like it's not a turnover or anything, but they're playing Tennessee. There's like a little bit of a, a fumble underneath the basket. He gets the ball and has to dribble out to kind of reset. And it's like practically avoidance behavior. Like he is not going to use his left prime opportunity <laughs> to cross to the left and get right into the paint. And he instead dribbles into a trap along the baseline and like almost loses his balance. Um, Auburn in particular really sat on his right. Jabari did, forced him to his left, was able to strip that. Um, if he doesn't get all, when he does get to the rim with his left, he really misses some of those layups quite poorly. So I have some numbers to share that I prepared for the pod. Um, he did shoot 43% from three over the last 17 games of the season, but he shot 29% according to Synergy on guarded catch and shoots for the entirety of the season. Um, shot 24% from three from the left corner and left wing compared to 36% from three from those same spots on the right side of the floor. And then Instat has him convert, converting 31% of his shots after driving with his left compared to 44% with his right. And he took a total of eight dribble jumpers out of ball screens or in isolation situations. So basically there's a really big incentive for opponents to take his right hand away, give him ground and force him to try to hit a pull-up shot. Um, and then we can get into the shot mechanics, which I think that I'm kind of of the place. I mean, we can tell anybody can tell if you see him from the corner, especially on these shots that he's lining the ball up with his right shoulder, not the middle of his chest. Obviously the ball was going in at a better clip toward the back end of the season. So I'm not necessarily somebody who's always like, you know, remake what's, at least was working better, but in situations where he does get forced left, which you can see in the Alabama game gets forced left, um, goes and has to go into the short mid range to get to his pull up because of his motion. And the fact that he's loading that to his right, he's essentially just bringing the ball directly into the trailing defender. And then it's a block and it's, it's going the other way. So 
um, the left hand and the left side of the floor, it, it is fairly concerning. Like, um, that's to put it lightly. Like, he might be one of the most right-hand dominant players that I can remember watching. It's funny because last year we had Franz, who is also super-duper right-hand dominant. I think he took less than 10 left-side layups the entire season. The difference is Franz would, like, pass the ball out if somebody really forced him. And Tari's like, nope, still going to try going right. <laughs> Whatever happens, happens. Um, so it became not much of an issue. Franz showed that he was, like, actually all right. He learned pretty quickly. Um, he had a little bit. I mean, Orlando didn't have, like, great spacing or anything. But um, I don't know. Franz figured it out. I don't think Tari will figure it out quite as fast just because – I think Franz handle handle is a little bit ahead. Like you said, Tari has flashes of kind of knowing what to do with his handle. So I don't think it's the worst handle ever. No, it shows like hesitation and burst in certain circumstances. So I think it's really just the habit building and the mental side of it. And, and then also just knowing that you don't have to do it like, right. Like you're not going to be the guy. So if it's not there, just it's all right. Just pass it to, you know, if if he's on the Pacers, pass it to Brogdon or Halliburton. If he's on the Knicks, pass it to Emmanuel quickly, obviously, who will know what to do with it. And, you know, hopefully that helps with it. But, yeah, he's definitely got his work cut out. Um, his touch around the rim isn't that great. He's luckily rel- – like It is confusingly bad. Like, I <laughs> – can I, I just have to, I will put this clip in the article. Uh, he, in the Texas A&M game uh, towards the back end of the year, he takes a floater from the free throw line and it almost goes over the hoop. Like it's, it's like jarringly bad at times, but then he also has like some moments where you're like, Oh, Hey, that's not bad. But then it's, I think, to, I mean, chaotic comes back again into what his touch is for me. He he, it's so easy for him to dunk and just place the ball on the backboard for layups that, you know, he can bail himself out with that, but he's going to have to learn to be a little bit gentle with it. And the in-between game, um, I wanted to circle back to that because Caitlin was touching on that, whether it's floater or mid-range, he's probably going to have to get something there. And as far as gripes high on my red flag list, that's probably up there more than some of the stuff we've talked about um, in terms of ceiling outcomes anyway, just because like Caitlin was alluding to his mechanics. There's other people in the NBA who are right side loading it and all that. Um, and really good shooters like bones or Trey Murphy um, in new Orleans, but because it's low, that makes it a little bit tricky for pull-ups, which is why he sucks at pull-ups, um, especially off the, you know, in the mid range, he doesn't take that many because it's hard to load up going right, much less going left. Like, like you said, so you can work that stuff out. Like he can get a higher release point from mid range shots, which is something that a lot of guys do in the league. They don't have the same release point from three as from mid range, but that stuff will take a little bit of time. Um, So you really hope that in the meet early in his career, he whatever team that drafts him would do well to try to not rely on him for that kind of mid-range creation. And you're gonna have to negotiate with other teams that are going to try to force that, like some teams did this year. Um, 
the difference is like NBA teams will have better rim protection, right? So he won't be able to just battering ram his way and then just dunk or whatever. So that might get tricky for him early on. Um, but hopefully, hopefully he gets some, you know, some open runways and a little bit more space to navigate. And, and I keep coming back to just the willingness to just pass the damn ball because you're going to have his skill set is so weird that like you're going to run into situations where you can't do it. So you have to be willing to just reset, especially if you're attacking closeouts. Like this isn't going to be time. You know, there's no 30 second shot clock or whatever. Like make your move. If it's not there. Keep the ball moving. So that's like if I was creating a development plan, that would be my number one priority for him. It's just the the passing and to just keep the ball moving, because that's how you keep him on the floor while working on all of his flaws. I also really want to see him get used as a screener and roller too, because I think if I remember, if I looked at it correctly, I didn't say he only had eight possessions as a, as a pick and roll roller that he actually took shots on this year um, per instat. So like, I would really like to see what that can look like at the next level. Not that it has to happen all the time, but somebody who's that athletic that can put the ball in the deck once or twice, um, just another good opportunity to be like, okay, get just more opportunities, A, to get somebody with rim gravity going towards the rim um, and be just to get more of those reps going downhill and getting to do anything with the ball in his hands. That's why it's so annoyingly hard to project and tricky because there's so many things that you could do with him. And I'm like, like I've al- I already know the Knicks aren't going to draft him because they don't draft guys who don't shoot pull-ups and are having lapses like he does. Like if he did to draft him, it would be a, a, a pleasant surprise and the other reason is like i just don't trust i don't part of me doesn't want the knicks to draft him because i don't think they'll do any of this i don't think they'll put him at small ball i don't think they'll use him to set a lot of screens i think they'll stick him in the corner like they did ob for the first half of the season or whatever and just minimize all of his strengths and his weaknesses at the same time for worse so um I, i'm curious what confidence level y'all are at in terms, you know, seeing how uh, Carla used the, the various younger players this year, both before and after acquiring Hallie, like where are we at in terms of Carlisle utilizing guys with some, some funky skills like that? I mean, there's not a great sample size. I think you'd probably need to look at O'Shea and, and Terry and then also be factoring in whether Miles is still on the roster and how they want to use Isaiah Jackson. Because if you're specifically going to want Tari to be doing more as the roller, I don't really think you're probably going to be doing that if he's out there in, in two-man lineups. I mean, the Pacers run so many two-man action screens, whether it's double drags, whether it's a ram screen into both of them doing a double ball screen or, you know, offside motion, strong type stuff. Like there's, there's room for that, but I don't think that they're going to use him as the roller if, if Isaiah Jackson's on the floor. And I think the spacing is going to be pretty cramped if both of them are playing at the same time. So O'Shea would sometimes be used in that stuff, but a lot of times he would be, you know, spaced out to the corner where then he could, you know, be resourceful and find things his own way. Um, kind of like with Terry Taylor as well. Terry Taylor isn't necessarily a knockdown shooter, but he had opportunities within it to, you know, find offense in other situations. But I mean, what you say about the mechanics too, like, I think that my apprehension about their development on defense is the opposite because they have a pretty good reputation of ironing people's shots out. I mean, they did, you can see a change in O'Shea's shot form from the middle of the season to the end. 
Um, they said that they've been working with TJ McConnell when he got back from the wrist injury. Like I'm not expecting like a radical change here, but um, you could tell a little bit of a difference in his shot. And he did knock down a few of those threes. Like I'm not super like, you know, bothered if he doesn't shoot threes, but he did also do some of that with Dallas as well, where I know that people who covered the Mavericks talked about them, you know, I don't want to say shot doctoring, but making slight alterations to mechanics to help guys out. So it's possible that some of that's there, but um, I don't know. I mean, the fact that they are willing to use Terry as much as a role man when he's six foot five and, and, and look at different looks suggests to me that they're open to a lot of different possibilities on offense. It's just with the other personnel on the roster, I don't know how much opportunity there would be there for that. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, and that's what makes it interesting too. Um, I guess I can fall into my stock down and, I am, I'm once again cheating. Uh, my stock down is also chaos because it's just, it's a double-edged sword and trying to figure that out. Cause I feel like that's kind of been this whole thing in the pod. Like to me, Tari is like the definition of draft gray area and trying to figure out where I'm at on, on multiple things. Because like on one hand, you can look and be like, well, look how many fouls you drew. And I'm like, well, okay. But look how many fouls got called because of what he was doing too. And um, I mean, foul was called against him because of what he was doing too. Like, I think um, I don't really have, I think, it, I mean, kind of like we saw play out with O'Shea a little bit this year, like he had some moments where he got to the line, but also like his uh, some of his struggles in just like finishing in general off drives could result in, in live ball turnovers because of a, I mean, maybe he bobbles the ball or it gets tipped or something, but also just um uh, barreling into people before you're like fully set and able to get a shot up. Like that's definitely going to be a place. Same thing. Like we've talked about defensively. I think that factors in. And then um, I, again, like, like we mentioned with the gray area stuff, like how much can you bank on some of those things changing, I guess is like, that's where a lot where I guess Intel and everything would come in as well um, that we don't really have access to right now. But um, I think that's what makes it really interesting with him. Uh, on both sides, just because I, I don't want to say we don't know. Like, I don't love seeing the draft as a crapshoot. I think that's kind of horseshit that always gets thrown around. Like, there's a lot to to learn from watching and, and talking to people, but also, like, I just am not sure what to think of him entirely. Those are an interesting one. I mean, the more, the more big man minutes you get in college, it's going to be – it's always going to be a little easier to draw free throws, but mm-hmm. – the whole like usage of his strength on drives, I really do think that's gonna that's gonna translate. And in terms of raw free throws drawn, it's probably gonna go down because his usage is gonna go down. Yeah. But the free throw rate, I right. wouldn't be surprised yeah. if that sticks high because that's really what sent his efficiency through the roof. Is most guys with big man type free throw rates above fifty are taking big man numbers of field goal attempts, like eight or whatever and Tari had a 32 usage so he was taking loads of attempts and just nine free throws 10 free throws 14 free throws 15 free throws like he's had games with all those and so that's one reason you know that his efficiency might take a little bit of a hit if he just doesn't get as many chances to draw fouls but that's still going to be there and like he's just so damn strong I like I I don't know why I expected him to weigh more than like two fifteen or two twenty or whatever because he just plays so physical. But then you look at him and he's not like he doesn't look like Corey McGetty or anything or a football player. He's just 
kind of relentless and it, it's it's a the double-edged sword of the way he plays somewhat recklessly is also why he draws so many fouls so yeah it, it really is going to be interesting to watch him wherever he goes kind of negotiate utilizing his strengths and minimizing his weaknesses and watching whatever coaching staff he's he's working with trying to go through that same kind of discourse because I it, it's it's a lot it's it's there's it's not like one giant fl- red flag it's more like a bunch of yellow orangey flags so you know the oversimplified philosophical question is like do you prefer a prospect with a lot of talent and who has to make a bunch of tweaks on a bunch of things or a prospect with a bunch of talent but his shot is super janky and messed up or he can't dribble a ball at all like one huge red flag right so if 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 you prefer that, then maybe you don't like Tari as much. But if you prefer the former, then maybe you deal with it. Um, I do want to ask Mark, since you know we know we have one draft in the books with Rick Carlisle as coach. Do you see Tari Eason as a Rick Carlisle type no. player? <laughs> I don't. Know if, I don't even you finish the question. It's a. It's a hard no. Um, I think obviously a lot would depend on like how he interviews with the team, but um, based just on play style. I do not, I do not think this is Rick's guy um, for being completely honest. Like I, again, like I would hope like that, that doesn't play as much of a factor into the roster building as you think, but Jalen Brunson. Um, so I, yeah, I, that's a, that is a good question to bring up. Yeah. I don't really see it tracking. I mean, because what, what Prez just said and what you said, having chaos as, as the double-edged sword in a way, it's like you want him to reign. I mean, I, he's going to have to get schema- more schematic discipline at the NBA level. Like some of the recklessness that stuff that he does is, is not going to work against faster, quicker guys and guys who can make passes out of that quicker, like the play that I'm going to have linked where he way overshoots um, Karis LeVert style and then is just walking back into the possession. Like that's that's not going to to cut it. But if you tamp that down, you're kind of taking away what also makes him special in a way and that is that also applies offensively so i feel like you're gonna have to be a team that really buys in to what he is and i'm not necessarily sure um it seems to me because i i don't really know how what position he would and and some of that's kind of semantics anyways but where he would be playing at but like the Pacers just went through last season where it was very clear that they needed more credible spacing on the floor. Mm-hmm. So if you then draft him and put him out there, it feels very clear to me that Rick Carlisle likes bigs who either roll and catch lobs or can space out to three and provide some degree of credibility there. Um, I'm not sure that he really fits into either of those archetypes. So uh, that that's kind of where I struggle with it a little bit. Yeah, I really liked what you said about having to buy into who he is on both ends because, like you're mentioning, like I think like if you just say okay, do this, do that, don't do any of the cool shit you did that made you interesting at LSU, like then what are you doing here? You know, like you're kind of, um, uh, I don't know, like the exact way to put it, but like you are losing some of the sauce there with like what makes him an interesting prospect. Like, I think, um, I, I don't know. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Russ. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, like, to put it crudely, like, he has stocks to spare 
right? Like that's how many he generated. You could have his numbers and they'd still be in like the 80th percentile or something for draft prospects probably. So like, you know, it's, he can get more scheme disciplined. He's always going to freelance a little. It's just a matter of like tamping down that it's not a binary, right? Like tamping down eliminates yeah. some of the worst, more egregious examples of which there were plenty. Um, but like, he's definitely going to, be a guy who's always like I'm sometimes I'm just gonna double off my dude and y'all gonna have to deal with it right like we saw it again completely different player but when Tybal came into the NBA with crazy stock rates after playing the zone people were like well like is he gonna is that gonna work because they're not gonna play the same zone that he played they let him roam and he's not gonna be able to make all these decisions on the fly and stuff like that and guess what his stock rates are still like through the roof because when it comes down to it he's a ridiculous athlete and that's why he gets it and he has good instincts and Tari is the same thing. And a lot of his stocks and blocks or steals and blocks come because of his physical traits. And I don't mean just his length and his speed. He has Kawhi hands and he has like young Kawhi strength. So like if he gets a finger on the ball, it is now his, right? So but that's- he has, yeah, he has some. St- he had a steal in one of these games where he literally stopped the ball with his hand, like a live, <laughs> a live drive, and he just stopped the ball with his hand. Yeah, I know which player you're talking about, and it's literally like what I do with my like little nephews. I'm like, no, this is my ball now with one hand. I'm like Shaq out here, and it's it's freakish, and you know, it, it also if you think about it mechanically, that kind of stuff it gives him like think about it just the way a dig works right like you take one or two steps lunge and then lunge back but if your wingspan is longer and your hand is bigger then like the odds of you getting a hand on it without going out of your way to abandon your initial assignment are better and that's that's really the sales pitch with him on defense is you want him to to continue dig, dig doing those digs and making those doubles from the blind spot and stuff like that. You just don't want him to just fly towards half court, like 30 feet out, you know, to interrupt the handoff, you know, in the second quarter or something like that, that you don't need to do. So um, even when I think about it that way, I'm like, okay, if the goal is just remove the worst, absolute worst gambles, and he's still going to have some crappy gambles, but like you've taken care of the worst ones. I don't know. That seems kind of reasonable, but maybe I'm just too optimistic about this. <laughs> and some of it for, you know, obviously you have a very good idea of what the Knicks are aiming to do defensively and what type of scheme Tom Thibodeau is going to run. From our side of it, there's really no projecting right now what how the Pacers envision playing defense. I mean, they talked Maybe last year about play defense next year. Who knows? You know. Well, I mean, it's taken <laughs> on so many different forms over the last 12 months. And if you want to toss in the year before that, it's taken on even more. I think that they do value switching and want to find defenders who can switch, which he fits that bill. But there are certain schemes that I think are going to suit him better than others. Um, I, I actually think it's going to sound kind of strange, but teams that play more zone, I think will help him. I think that he can compete in zone really well. Cause I think that that's kind of how he thinks defensively. So if you're a team that mixes in a lot of that, like when the Pacers go to playing zone and they flash into man, I think that that type of chaos would suit him well. And I think he'd be able to spring out of those mid possession changes, um, 
pretty nicely. But if, if they're going to be doing a more conservative scheme that's more by very specific rules, I would have a lot more questions about it. Yeah. No, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, yeah, I, especially if you're talking about putting him in zone. I loved the idea of getting to see that and him just getting to really muck things up in ground coverage. Um, I totally lost my train of thought. Uh Actually, Caitlin, I've I've given this to you before as a, as a as an analogy. Prez, have you ever seen Terminator Two? Like it's alien years ago. Oh, oh, okay, never mind. It's not gonna make any <laughs> sense. But like, there's a scene at the end where the T1000 like it can morph into anything, but then it 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 morphs into things so much that at the end when it it's uh, getting like burned in flames, um, it starts trying to morph into everything that it's morphed into throughout the movie, and it just turns into like a blob. And that's how I felt about the Pacers defense this year. Um, but I mean, and, and in last year too, but yeah, sorry. That, I had to get that one in again. Uh, Caitlin, what else do you want to hit on in this? I mean, I think that we've about covered everything unless Prez has any more exciting Tari topics to pick up. I mean, I guess I would close and ask him because I mean, the Knicks are not picking at number six. How would you feel if the Knicks were at number six and they took Tari Eason? I think that'd be a reach. Um, yeah. I, even on my personal Nick-specific big board, he's not six. He's not far from six, but he's he's not six. So, um, you know, I, I would have preferred in this timeline them to trade down uh, and and just get something for their troubles if they if they really like Tari. Um, the one other thing I just wanted to throw out there about him that I'm curious how it. Like, I, I don't know if one of y'all mentioned it or not, but so many times with toolsy defensive-based forwards, they don't come into the league with a background of taking a ton of shots. Like, I'm thinking, like, Denny or Okoro or these types of guys. And the hope is, like, oh, they have this skill and that skill. And as they get more comfortable, they'll get more usage. But with Tari, it's the opposite. And I genuinely view that as a huge advantage. I think that's an advantage that usually only top picks get because usually only top picks come into the league with really high usage and are good at defense. That's pretty rare. So to me, like the idea of scaling him down in all types of ways, it's not just a theory that I'm looking forward to, but like, a plus in his ledger to me. Um, and it's something I've been thinking about this cycle. Cause there's other weird guys like that, like Johnny Davis who have high usage and project to go down and even less alpha Omega type guys like Matherin who, you know, what is their role at the next level? Probably not super high usage, at least not immediately. So just the idea of scaling down and how that work, how that fits into roles. It's something I've been thinking about and, I, I do feel like it's a plus for him. Um, and for the Pacers, if they were to trade down, I don't know. I don't know the rumor mill situation. I'm assuming the Pacers, I'm assuming most Pacers fans just want them to take like whoever awesome is there at six. Like are people into trading down? Is that a thing? I mean, Kevin Pritchard made it pretty clear in their presser that, I mean, he kind of let off and said that, <laughs> you know, we have pick number six. 
but where the pick is today doesn't guarantee that that's where we're going to select and left a lot of gray area that they could potentially, you know, move up and used examples from Portland where they ended up in the draft where they got LaMarcus and Brandon Roy and also kind of made it seem as though they could potentially trade down as well and wanting to add more young players to their current core and perhaps more than one young player. So I think that's definitely a possibility. Yeah. No, yeah. The Pacers should just go back to the gray cities all the time. Make that the home jerseys because they're always in the gray area. So make it exciting. I still will not live down. I love those jerseys. I know everybody hates them. I think they're good. I can't. Gray's a good color, man. But um, I think that unless you had anything else you want to close out on, Caitlin, I think that's a good uh, a good setting off point for us. Oh, I'm good. Jerseys were so I just Googled them. You like these jerseys? No, oh, they're horrible. It's a, it's we don't nice... like them. Okay, we're not, okay. We're not closing on that. <laughs> I'm the only just one. Just checking, okay. just checking. I'm the only person who has ever watched a Pacers game that likes that jersey, but I'll uh, I'll die on that hill. I'm fine with it. <laughs> uh, well, Prez, thank you for coming on, man. Do you want to plug anything before you get out of here? Sorry, I'm still laughing at these jerseys. <laughs> <You're good. laughs> they look like a bad Transformer. Oh, okay. Um, I uh, I'll plug the Strickland. We've had a lot of draft stuff. Um, I did a piece on Usman Jiang, uh, that was kind of long and has a lot of clips. So if you're into foreign prospects, go check that out. He's really good. Um, and really appreciate y'all having me on. Yeah, of course, man. Thanks for coming on and making the time. Uh, for for me and Caitlin, appreciate everyone listening. Uh, again, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We want to hear from you and get your feedback. Um, we really appreciate you guys for for keeping up and listening and engaging with us um, as we head into the draft. So uh, thank you for listening. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day.